This is from the final chapter of G.I. Gurdjieff's Beelzebub's Tales to his grandson. Addressing those present, Mr. Gurdjieff then said, You have plenty of money, luxurious conditions of existence, and universal esteem and respect. At the head of your well-established concerns are people absolutely reliable and devoted to you. In a word, your life is a bed of roses. You dispose of your time as you please, you are a patron of the arts, you settle world questions over a, cup, over a cup of coffee, and you are even interested in the development of the latent spiritual forces of man. You are not unfamiliar with the needs of the spirit, and are well versed in philosophical matters. You are well educated and widely read. Having a great deal of learning on all kinds of questions, you are reputed to be a clever man. Being at home in a variety of fields, you are a model of culture. All who know you regard you as a man of great will, and most of them even attribute all your advantages to the results of the manifestations, manifestations of this will of yours. In short, from every point of view, you are fully deserving of imitation, and a man to be envied. In the morning, you wake up under the impression of some oppressive dream. Your slightly depressed state, that dispersed on awakening, has nevertheless, nevertheless left its mark. A certain languidness and hesitancy in your movements. You go to the mirror and comb your hair and carelessly drop the brush. You have only just picked it up when you drop it again. You then pick it up with a shade of impatience and, in consequence, you drop it a third time. You try to catch it as it is falling, but, from an unlucky blow of your hand, the brush makes for the mirror. In vain you rush to save it. Crack! There is a star of cracks on that antique mirror of which you were so proud. Damn, devil take it! And you experience a need to vent your fresh annoyance on someone or other. And not finding the newspaper beside your morning coffee, the servant having forgotten to put it there, the cup of your patience overflows and you decide that you cannot stand the fellow any longer in the house. It is time for you to go out. The weather being pleasant, and not having far to go, you decide to walk. Behind you glides your new automobile of the latest model. The, sh the bright sunshine somewhat calms you, and a crowd which is collected in the corner attracts your attention. You go nearer, and in the middle of the crowd you see a man lying unconscious on the pavement. A policeman, with the help of some of the, as they are called, idlers who are collected, puts the man into a taxi to take him to the hospital. Thanks merely to the likeness which has just struck you between the face of the chauffeur, chauffeur and the man of the drunkard you bumped into last year when you were returning somewhat tipsy yourself from a rowdy birthday party, you notice that the accident on the street corner is unaccountably connected in your associations with a meringue you ate at the party. Ah, uh, what a meringue that was. That servant of yours, forgetting the newspaper, forgetting your newspaper today, spoiled your morning coffee. Why not make up for it at once? Here is a fashionable cafe where you sometimes go with your friends. But why did you recall the servant? Had you not almost entirely forgotten the morning's annoyances? But now, how very good this meringue takes, tastes with the coffee. Look, there are two ladies at the next table. What a charming blonde. You hear her whispering to her companion, glancing at you. Now he is the sort of man I like. Do you, do you deny that from these words about you, accidentally overheard and perhaps intentionally said aloud, the whole of you, as is said, inwardly rejoices? Suppose that, suppose that at this moment you were asked whether it has been worth, uh, whether, whether it has been worthwhile getting fussed and losing your temper over the morning's annoyances, you would, of course, answer in the negative and promise yourself that nothing of the kind should ever occur again. 
Need you be told how your mood was transformed while you were making the acquaintance of the blonde in whom you were interested and who was interested in you, and its state during all the time you spent with her? You return home humming some air, and even the sight of the, un uh, even the, sight of the broken mirror only elicits a smile from you. But how about the business on which you had gone out this morning? You only just remember it. Clever. Well, never mind. You can telephone. You go to the phone and the girl connects you with the wrong number. You ring again. You get the same number. Some man informs you that you are bothering him, and you tell him it is not your fault, and that with one word or another, you learn to your surprise that you are a scoundrel and an idiot, and if you ring him up again, then... A rug slipping under your feet provokes a storm of indignation. And you should hear the tone of voice in which you rebuke the servant who is handing you a letter. The letter is from a man you esteem and whose good opinion you value highly. The contents of the letter are so flattering to you that as you read, your irritation gradually passes and changes to the pleasant embarrassment of a man listening to a eulogy of himself. You finish reading the, le the, the letter in the happiest of moods. I could continue this picture of your day, you free man. Perhaps you, th you think I'm overdrawing. No, it is a photographically exact snapshot from nature. So this is from George Gurdjieff, who was, among other things, an author, a composer, a choreographer of dances, a gourmet chef, martial artist, a uh, healer, um, kind of a jack-of-all-trades, um, explorer, you know, adventurer, and a teacher. In his last years, he would refer to himself as simply a teacher of dancing. But among all these things, he was also, and um, perhaps primarily, a an extremely insightful um, categorizer of humanity, and he had a grasp of human nature that was not only far ahead of its time, but probably um, not that that no one really can compare to um, in in the the history of um, philosophy, psychology. He was a, a, he had a vast insight into human nature. And as we see in this quote that he, he gave, it is somewhat sarcastic, because here is um, a, a picture he's painting of, um, you know, a man well-regarded by everybody, who has a high opinion of himself and who others have a high opinion of, but when it comes down to his daily life, he is totally at the whim of the forces around him. His mood is constantly changing, provoked by the merest of um, uh, inconveniences, one thing, you know, he stubs his toe and he gets angry and tells off his, you know, tells off his servant. A blonde smiles at him and now he's in a good mood and thinking about all the good things. And so when, he, when Gurdjieff called him this free man, he wasn't free. And this is the, this is the picture of everyone, of, of humanity in their, in just in their normal state. How we are not free. We are, we think we're free. But we have little to no control over our emotional reactions, our opinions of ourselves, um, and we really don't know the truth. So Gurdjieff was famous for saying that man is asleep. This came out of what was one of the one of the first and probably the the most important still 
expositions of his his ideas and his teaching, and that is from um, Peter Ospensky's In Search of the Miraculous. This is an old copy. Still in print. So he said man is asleep, and what he meant by that is that man, uh, humanity, as they ordinarily are, as we think of ourselves, as we ex- experience ourselves in everyday life, are in a state that is akin to asleep. For Gurdjieff, he separated consciousness into different levels. So he had, you had the, the level of sleep, which was actual sleep, like at night when you fall asleep. But then the ordinary state of consciousness in which we find ourselves during the day, he called waking sleep. It's almost like in a, in a, in a dream state, we, it, it's a subjective dream where the, the images are, um, are formed completely from our own um, subjective consciousness. And in the waking life, it's an objective dream state. We're dreaming, we're still dreaming, but we're surrounded by the objects of the world. But he said that there's a, there are states of consciousness above that, and that real consciousness is a, state, uh, a step above ordinary waking dreamlike consciousness. So he presented his, or he, he basically brought his, his system in order to try to wake people up. That's what he's primarily known for. Even though his, even though he's not a, his name isn't a, um, a common household name. You don't hear about him very often. Chances are, if you talked about him on the street, people probably wouldn't know who you're talking about. But if you say, um, if you say someone's asleep, they'll they'll get what you're talking about. It's even entered the the popular discourse now, talking about um, you know being awake or woke. Um, that's th- that concept. Gurdjieff was probably the one that. Um, that really introduced that into modern culture um, through the the kind of New Age movement in the 60s that kind of adopted his ideas. Um, primarily, I, I'm pretty sure, through Charles Tart, who wrote his book, Altered States of Consciousness, and had another book um, on that had sections on Gurdjieff in which he talked about his ideas. So we're going to be talking about Gurdjieff today and next week. And on this show... I th- we're going to try to give a bit of kind of a biographical sketch, some of his basic ideas, maybe some funny stories about him, just to give a, a picture for those who aren't aware of him of who he was and what he was like, and hopefully for those who are aware of him, um, perhaps a, a a few little tidbits and bits of information that you um, maybe you haven't heard of or um, are not, not aware of. So just as a quick background, Gurdjieff was born in... Um, what is now modern Gyumri in Armenia. He was born to um, a Greek family. His father was Greek and his mother was uh, Arme- Greek-Armenian. So he's basically in that area, it's kind of like the, the, the Trans-Caucasia area. It's kind of like a melting pot. There are all kinds of different cultures there. Um, in the This was in the Russian Empire in the last quarter of the, uh, of the 19th century. Um, so no one, no one's really certain when he was born. It was either 1866, 72, or 77. Somewhere in there, Gurdjieff was born in Armenia and um, to Greek Caucasian parents. So he grew, grew up speaking Greek, Armenian, um, of course learned Russian, um, knew, learned Persian. He, he knew several languages. Um, and his, he's got one book that we'll mention later on where he, he gives his version of his, of his childhood and, and growing up, which you can never be quite sure how much is um, fantastical and how much is true. He said that 90% of it was true. 10% was fantasy. But uh, sorting out which was which is kind of hard because at a, at a young age, well, when he, when he became an adult, you know, late teenager, 
early 20s, he traveled a lot. And this much is verified. He traveled all over the place. He went to uh, all over the Middle East, India, Northern Africa, into Central Asia, Mongolia, Tibet. Because he was looking for the answers. You know, he wanted to find out if there was secret knowledge, that if, if anyone had preserved kind of like the, the pristine, perfect knowledge of, of everything and self-development primarily and what the cosmos is and what man is and what are, what are humanity's possibilities. And so in his, in his PR image of himself that he brought after making these travels, um, he, this, this was a time when still, you know, it's not like today where, the, where there's the internet and you can talk to someone in, you know, Mongolia by the internet. Um, th- there was a, a, an allure that surrounded the East that f- for Westerners. So he kind of exploited that allure um, by presenting what he, was, what, what he brought as the, the wisdom of the East. And there's probably some truth in it because he did learn some things while he was while he was over there, but I think primarily, um, and an opinion shared by several historians that also you know are into the the Gurdjieff stuff and who have written books that probably embellished and basically used this as a as a way of getting um, of uh, drumming up some interest and uh, in this system to to get people to listen to what he had to say, because at one point he told one of his. Um, one of his most famous, another one of his most famous students, Alfred Orage, basically told him when he went to t- Tibet that the, the monks there kind of really didn't know anything. Like, if, if they knew something, they didn't know that they knew it. So he wasn't really impressed. But at the same time, he presents, he presents the East and these monasteries as like the source of this hidden knowledge. Um, he really had like a, a mythical mind in that sense. Like he was creating um, and, and writing stories like the thousand and one nights like uh, somewhat fantastical but in a in a in a believable um an, in a believable framework because it was it is alluring there is a mystique about it but when you read his actual um his actual writings especially in in search of the miraculous it has a very there there's there's this weird phenomenon that happens where on the one hand there is this mystification and like there there is this as uspensky called it a search for the miraculous there's that something that that comes through but on the other hand there's a demystification that goes on Gurdjieff presents this very dry um, like even mechanical picture of the cosmos where humanity's place in the cosmos and its function is is as, is as a basically transformer of energies that we are these machines that that help the universe grow by transforming energies in our bodies and that's all we are. We are basically just um, just fuel, you know, fuel burners, and and we do so completely unconsciously. We serve the universe completely unconsciously, but that we have the possibility of of learning our place in the universe and serving that purpose consciously, and with that opens up the miraculous. That's where the the potential for for human development comes in, and. So, well, that's a bit about the, the, the picture, that very, you know, very loose outline of what Gurdjieff was actually doing. But what he, so how this ha- came about was after his, you know, his years of travels, 20 or 30 years, he went, uh, like I said, he was born in the Russian Empire. He went up to Moscow and started, um, started giving lectures on, on his system. This is where he found, or... PD, uh, P, Peter P.D. Ospensky, um, and eventually 
had a circle around around him that formed in in Moscow and St. Petersburg. And then, right as this is happening, right as he's starting up, there's the Russian Revolution. So things kind of go haywire, things go crazy, and they have to get the hell out of there. So they by foot, make it all the way down to, back down to the Caucasus, um, Georgia, Turkey, stay there for a while, eventually make their way through Europe, um, and finally settling in France. So in France was where he set up a more or less permanent form of what he'd started in, in Georgia and Turkey, the Institute for the Harmonious Development of Man. This was a kind of chateau that, um, that he, that he rented and, and started this school where he got, you know, found pupils, found people that were interested to basically try out his system. Again, um, in retrospect, and based on one of his writings in particular, The Herald of the Coming Good, the, the first thing he actually published, it seems to me that, um, that this was actually still part of Gurdjieff's experimental phase. He was kind of like a a lab technician and all the people coming to him to learn his his uh, system were still kind of his lab rats. He was doing experiments on them, seeing what worked and what didn't. Because what he really wanted to do was find a way to introduce into daily life, daily Western living, the techniques that you would find in monasteries of various sort and make them applicable in real life. So to basically achieve something, achieve um, something that um, something of the benefit and development that monks of various sorts and and yogis can get, but in real life, in a balanced way. So not separated from life, not going to a monastery um, and isolating yourself to to develop in certain ways, but to to fulfill and manifest you know the your full potential in the in the thick of it in in everyday life. Um, so I think that's what he was trying in it initially in in France um, at the Priory. And then at this institute, and according to him, and I think objectively, you could say that 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 experiment was some, somewhat of a failure, and he ended up getting in a major car crash and eventually having to sell the place, close it down. Went through a period in the '30s of kind of um, where he seemed kind of aimless, kind of wandering, not quite sh- not quite sure he was doing what he should or what he, even what he should do. Um, did have a small group of of pupils in the in the 30s in Paris in his apartment, um, including some fairly well-known writers of that time, uh, Salito Solano, Catherine Hume, Margaret Anderson. Um, Catherine Hume, by the way, um, is probably the most well-known. She wrote uh, a novel called The Nun's Story, which was made into a film um, stra- starring Audrey Hepburn um, about her partner. Um, all these women at the time were... or, the, or I'm pretty sure all of them, maybe the vast majority of them were lesbians. And so the, a nun story was about Catherine Hume's partner who had been a nun. And so then in the forties, the war starts and Gurdjieff's in Paris. So he's in Paris during the Nazi occupation and all throughout the occupation, he's holding meetings with a group of French pupils. At this point, some of his other students, some of the people from the UK and the U S aren't even sure if he's still alive. Like one of his, one of his, another one of his most well students, well-known students, um, John Bennett, uh, a British guy. He he wasn't even sure if Gurdjieff was alive still. He'd been look, he'd looked for him a couple times, but hadn't heard any news. So after the war was ended, he actually he found out Gurdjieff was still alive and uh, and went to to reacquaint himself with him. And so in the that in the forties, he like I said he 
basically taught, worked with his, his French groups, which actually included, um, well, he worked with his French groups, and then after the war, opened, uh, you know, the travel was easier, so he had people, his, his students from the U.S. and uh, the U.K., among other places, come, and he ended up dying in 1949. So that's just a brief overview of, of his life. Um, did you guys want to add anything to that story? Yeah. Well, actually, you said something interesting there, Harrison. You said that he was working with his pupils in a kind of an experimental um, capacity and trying different ideas about inducing a state of wakefulness uh, or consciousness or and conscience, as he would put it, um, the capacity for an individual to be as aware of themselves in their daily movements, in their intentionality, uh, in their uh, awareness of their own motivations and intentions. And I think that he was also uh, experimenting on himself. And this really comes through in books like this one. This is Life is Real Only Then When I Am, where he goes into some detail about his own process and his own goals and aims that he had set for himself, which were considerable. So all the pressures that he may have put on his pupils to do work and to push themselves to the limit and to experience this sense of struggle within themselves, the struggle between yes and no, the struggle between doing and, and sleeping, was something that he he put himself through in quite a rigorous way. And even to the expense of his own health, his own well-being, he writes about uh, experiences of coming down with various illnesses in an effort, in an exhaustive effort to push himself forward uh, in the work that he felt that he had to do, that was his life's mission. So I was reminded of a, first impression that I ever had of Gurdjieff, uh, given to me by a friend who had read, I think, In Search of the Miraculous and maybe some of his other material. And what she had said to me at the time was, it's so cold. And I think what she meant by that, and what I've heard from other people in, in saying that, is that there is the impression that's been created around Gurdjieff which may be one reason why he hasn't reached the levels of popularity that he likely deserves, that he, that he didn't have any kind of uh, human regard for individuals. Uh, I don't know how that came to pass. Maybe her, her readings of, of his were quite limited. Uh, but my impression, having read several of his books, is that he... He understood that without struggle, without carrying the, the burden of the abivatel, as he would call it, which is the, the individual who could take on responsibility for oneself and one others and very well have the capacity to support many people monetarily, uh, materially, that uh, this was a kind of um, a, a basic level that humanity should have in, in care of one another that he expected of himself and that he delivered on. So he, 
he walked the walk. He walked his talk. He he lived those things that he was trying to impart on his students. He wasn't someone who was a, a harsh taskmaster, if he ever was that, out of any kind of gratuitous, uh, malevolent, um, authoritarian streak. It was quite the opposite. It was a, it was all in the service of raising his fellow man upward as he saw it. And this is, this is apparent in all of his books and he does it in, in all different types of ways from narrating his own struggles with his own process to laying it out in statements that were kind of these, uh, macrocosmic objective observations of humanity and the individual from a distance. So like, this is one quote of his that, that speaks to the quote we heard of at the top of the show. Man has no individual eye, but there are instead hundreds of thousands of separate small eyes, very often entirely unknown to one another, never coming into contact or, on the contrary, hostile to each other, mutually exclusive and incompatible. Each minute, each moment, man is saying or thinking I, and each time his eye is different. Just now it was a thought, now it is a desire, now a sensation, now another thought, and so on endlessly. Man is a plurality. Man's name is Legion. In that quote, Gurdjieff is, what he's saying to us is that we are in such a state of dissociation, in such a state of sleep and hypnosis by the many things that contemporary uh, society has surrounded us with, so many distractions, that there is very little left of us that has formed any kind of integrated, uh, solid, um, psychologically uh, coherent uh, sense of self and purpose. And that to me is, is one of the, the biggest, if not the biggest kinds of contributions that Gurdjieff brought to at least those people in his circles. And later on, uh, through the, the schools that arose out of his teachings and out of his pupils in the decades to come, which still exists today, and we'll probably get into that a little later. Uh, but there was this sense of, of sleep that he was all too painfully aware existed among humanity that he, he wanted to wake people up from. And it was this uh, mechanical nature that he had noticed in people. And he, he even writes that one of the things that had helped him the most in, in understanding the uh, the dross, the, the shit that existed in each person uh, and humanity at large, uh, one of the exercises that he did was to, you know, whoever he met, he would, he writes, he would press their corns hard. So he, he said that he would find a vulnerability uh, in a person, or if not a vulnerability, then a, then a kind of uh, dimension to a, a person's um, a character flaw, a character flaw, or a bit of self-importance that mm-hmm. that was easily recognized by him, and 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 push it in such a way that that they would uh, respond with who they really were in recognition of of his work and what he was trying to do. 
And it was in this way that he got to understand people uh, in an even uh, wider sense. And um, it sounds <laughs> it, it sounds a little awful, actually, uh, because to be on the receiving end of of, of having your self-importance pressed and pressured uh it's not a pleasant thing in any sense if if you've if there's any amount of work that you haven't done on yourself or or if there are weaknesses or dimensions of your own thinking and uh and vulnerabilities that you're not yet aware of to have it to have it brought front and center um having feedback about yourself that isn't pleasant that isn't a compliment uh, is is just quite it's unpleasant so what he was able to do uh, in educating himself as to what was uh, the true state of humanity was to was to work with people in this way and I think that there was also quite a willingness to it wasn't only about that of course it was also about giving advice it was also about being a mentor to individuals so uh, he wasn't just pointing out people's vulnerabilities and weaknesses to them. He was also proactively making suggestions about how they approach certain things or ways and perspectives uh, that people could use to look at themselves. And uh, so in that sense, he was um, kind of a, a profound, uh, profoundly insightful psychologist. place in the 40s but one of his um, one of his students had gone on to lead a, a group and she came back to visit him and when she, when he saw the students he berated her and he basically said you're worthless you've done everything wrong with the system you know you're you are you failed spectacularly and one of the students got up and he said to Gurdjieff he said if she's a failure it's only because you failed to teach her and she's done so many positive things for us that we're going to stand by her side no matter what and then Gurdjieff looked at her and he said you have exactly one student <laughs> and then in another case uh, he was having dinner and this uh, some story was being circulated uh, some story had been told and he made a show of like being displeased by it. So he said to uh, one of the, the individuals there, he said, I want you to find out, go through this entire room and find out who started that story, who told that story. And then, you know, she's like all aghast and frightened. And then someone, and then one of his other disciples said, just, just say that you told, you said the story. It's, it doesn't matter. And then he's, and he looks at her and he says, you see how you always try and protect yourself. It's silly. <laughs> you don't need to always try and protect yourself. You don't need to be afraid of everything. And it was, you know, moments of insight that people get to see, you know, what they're, what they're truly made of and they get to prove themselves. You know, it's, you know, when it's, you get the impression that when you're around Gurdjieff, you're always in the middle of a storm and you're never quite sure when the, you know, the lightning is going to strike. But when it does, you get a, a gigantic flash of insight about your character and the character of others around you. And you get to, a chance to actually see who you are and what you're made of. And then you get to see, you get to know yourself in a very, you know, down to earth, true truly fundamental way who am i and what do i have to work with because if you don't know that you don't have anything to work with you're like he said you're you're asleep you're just a, a legion of different eyes just just stumbling upon and you know this 
in today's world, you know, that's, it seems like there's a crisis in just about every single area there possibly could be, you know, this political crisis, climate crisis, a social crisis, everybody's, you know, all up in arms, but this, um, this is exactly what Gurdjieff, basically, he saw the, the fruits of this um, way back when, like you said, he was a man far ahead of his time. And he understood that this line of progress, of technical progress, proceeding without a corresponding development of our, our being, of, of, you know, being, like you said, rich, uh, philosophy, you know, philosophically inclined, you know, scientifically inclined. You're well read. You're smart, but then you're also petty, vain, egotistical, and and useless in you know any other kind of way. He he noticed that this trend, if it continued, would lead to exactly the kinds of gigantic, horrendous crises that we have today, where um, it's you know just vain egotism running running the show and putting on you know this this big hurrah about. Um, you, uh, you know, utopian kinds of thinking of, you know, all of these different things that mask the, the little weak eye that, you know, exists within each of us. I want to say something about his methods. Everything with Gurdjieff was a test, or at least that it could be interpreted like that. In his early years, he was a taskmaster. And uh, I think one of his nicknames was even like the Georgian devil or something like that. And he'd comment on that in later years that he kind of, he did kind of mellow out in later years. It was in, it was when, in, in the twenties that he was really uh, um, kind of at his, at his prime in his, in his um, taskmaster With the mentality. Yeah. But um, I want to give another example of why everything was a test, because if you were vain, if you were self-important, he would humiliate you. He would poke your poke your button, push your buttons, poke you in the most uncomfortable spots in order to elicit that manifestation of your own um, arrogance and self-importance um, as a as a so that you could then see it, so that you could see your own reactivity and the high opinion that you have your, of yourself, and that that high opinion that you have of yourself isn't justified. That really your own reactivity shows what a slave you are to to your own. Um, you know, mechanical nature. So there's one example that shows that Gurdjieff could could be an asshole. Like a lot of the things that he did, you know, you could look back on and say, well, you know, that was that was mean. No one in polite society would do that. So there's um, this was in the last one of the last decades of his life, and he'd he'd um, asked one of his students to get some sugar cubes for him. And he liked like these little, um, like I, I can't remember if they were the square or the rectangular ones, but she couldn't find that type, so she got a different kind, which which was um, you know just a different size and shape than the ones he was used to. And he was just berating her, telling her she's worthless. Why look at this? What? And her husband was there, and her husband, um, <laughs> you know, very timidly, you know, you could you could see that he was he was getting that he was upset, that he was offended, that he wanted to say something. So very timidly, he said, "Mr. Gurdjieff, you can't speak to my wife like that." And immediately, Gurdjieff got completely calm and said. Bravo. <laughs> you know? So here was an opportunity for this man to stick up to stick up for his wife, to stand up for her to this this towering figure. And you you gotta understand, if you're not familiar with Gurdjieff, that he did have a like a magnetic personality. He was extremely charismatic. Um the the people that, that met him and surrounded him basically did see him as this like living saint because he was so he had such will and lived lived um you know, lived by his system so so much himself personally that he was 
um, like a, uh, an exemplar for them. They all looked up to him because he was this kind of like master of, of, of living in a certain sense. And so for, for this man, this timid man to stick up f- for himself and to stand up for his wife took a great amount of courage. Um, it's, it, it, that was a, a huge struggle. So Gurdjieff immediately, I don't, who knows if he planned it or if, if he really was just pissed off that he got the wrong sugar cubes, but immediately in that moment, uh, praised this man for, for having the courage to actually stand up to him. Mm-hmm. And that's like, so, so th- there's a similarity in the story you told Corey about the, the, it was Madame de Salzman's, uh, Jean de Salzman's student that, that stood up and said, you know, well, if she doesn't know, it's your fault for not teaching her. It's like, and he praised that. So, so one of the, th- one of the, one of the features of like the, the, of Gurdjieff at the time and, and his, and his students was that like no emotion was off limits, um, that you could manifest and express emotion, but that, that um, you had to have some self-control. You could never, you, you should never allow the emotion to control you. So Gurdjieff kind of exemplified that whenever he was angry, he could, he could immediately calm himself down. Um, and especially as a teaching opportunity for someone to, to be able to, to either, well, you could say that he was kind of an expert of both positive and negative reinforcement because he would, he would praise, he would praise good behavior and good, um, and, and just positive developments in his students and, but also ruthlessly push their buttons in order to, in order to let them see how petty they were, um, in order to, in order to change, to transform, to become less petty. And, um, you see this a lot. There, there was a, there was a progression in the way that Gurdjieff operated. Like I said, in those early years, it was more like he was experimenting himself on what would work and what wouldn't. He basically found out a lot of things that didn't work that, um, like with, uh, with the Institute, I, I think that he found out that the, that his methods weren't introducing what he wanted to introduce. It wasn't, it wasn't, uh, the perfect method of, of achieving what he wanted to achieve. So he changed course and in the forties was much more, um, like much more mellow, much more laid back, um, and, and more willing to answer questions. And so this is what you see in his later talks. Um, we'll be talking about this book a few times. It just came out in 2017. Um, it's called Paris Meetings, 1943. And they're transcripts, translations of transcripts from his French groups in, in that year. And there's all kinds of examples of, of pupils sharing something with him um, that might seem kind of confusing or, or even just mundane, um, but Gurdjieff could recognize in, in these things progress. And at those at those moments, he was he would praise these students and and um, like in such a way that it, I can imagine it would have a, a lasting impact. To because um, if you can imagine a guy like this who who could push your buttons so expertly, um, and who was seemingly so prickly himself, and um, to to then recognize in you something that you're doing right and praiseworthy that in itself is a is also a, a teaching tool and a um probably you know one of those moments that uh one of those moments that will that you can hang on to for the years to come and look back on as a as an indicator of actual progress so he he'd even be quite um what's the word um 
formal about his his praise so you know he'd turn to them and you know shake their hand and say you like you are now my brother or you're now my son or something it's like now now you are we're on the same level to some degree so he'd lower he'd basically lower himself down to the, to the level of the student in order to to raise them up which is a very stoic idea it's one thing i wanted to point out to tie into our previous shows um, in the last couple of weeks about stoicism and early philosophy like early greek philosophy so one of the things we pointed out back then is is that philosophical schools were actual practical schools you went there to learn a way of life not just a theory it's not like uh, philosophy departments in, in universities today where you go and you you have a textbook and you just read what they thought read their theories all intellectual work in the in the ancient schools like like the stoics and the cynics it was a practical school you went there in order to learn the practices to implement in your life to actually um, to actually change yourself personally to actually experience an inner transformation of of one sort or another so Gurdjieff really is a, is a modern example of someone who developed a philosophical school started a philosophical school where that was the purpose was to to implement practical activities and 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 exercises in order to um in order to bring yourself into alignment with that higher ideal in the stoics it was the the ideal of the stoic sage and there were various techniques that we talked about in order to get there so gurdjieff really is in that tradition of of greek philosophy he wasn't a fan of philosophy but he wasn't a fan of like you know spec speculative philosophy or just theoretical philosophy he did have a whole bunch of theory in his system but for him the primary thing like with the stoics was the was the practical implementation of that philosophy to have an effect on your life um, and on your being so that was the the primary thing and he and he was he did have in addition to his similarities with the stoics he was very much a cynic too um not in the sense of having no possessions and living on the street but in the sense of like the cynics when they were on the street you know living in their barrels or whatever in their in their rags they were the ones that were constantly pushing people's buttons on the street constantly pointing out all of their flaws as a way of holding up a mirror to to the people around them to see who they were because if it can if gurdjieff's philosophy and aim can be summed up i think in a, in a phrase it would be the 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 socratic one to know thyself to know yourself and you can't know yourself if you don't have a, a correct image of yourself you need to have a mirror um in order to see yourself because we have so many illusions about ourselves so many ideas that are uh, fantastical and imaginary and we we hope we we create these these images of, of ourselves that are so much higher and more um, idealized than we actually are and that holds us back we need to have an accurate representation of who we are and where we're at in order to actually change if we think we're if we think think we're already there we'll never take the first step to actually get to who we who we could be so gurdjieff was uh you could say an expert of holding up that holding up that mirror and then giving the the practical advice the practical things to implement in one's daily life to actually uh, progress from that state from that state of of inner um, multiplicity in, in and to solidify that into one solid self um, and what as he might call it to actually grow a soul mm -hmm. well yeah it's it's interesting because you when you read uh, about uh, stoicism you know Zeno the founder of, of what we know now as, as stoicism said that the entire point of their philosophy was to live consistently 
And then that was, you know, later, you know, iterated upon and it became to live consistently with nature, to live consistently, you know, and then every Stoic sage basically had their own, um, their, their own take on it. But when you read Gurdjieff, uh, you begin to understand exactly what uh, Zeno was talking about, to live consistently. Everything that we're talking about, um, the, the multiplicity of eyes, the, the passions, you know, one moment you're moody, the next moment you're this, you're that, and you're completely a slave to all these things. Well, according to Zeno, you know, by applying reason to your everyday activities of life, you're able to live consistently, whereas in any other part of your being, there's just a conflict, constant conflict. And so I wanted to read a quote from Gurdjieff um, where he discusses this exact uh, problem. It was, it was at, when he was uh, running the Institute, he was giving public lectures and he said, let me see if I can find it. Until now, you have not been working like men, but there is a possibility to learn to work like men. Working like a man means that a man feels what he is doing and thinks why and for what he does it, how he is doing it now, and how it is generally best to get it done, whether there is a better way. The essence of man's correct work is in the working together of the three centers, the moving center, which would be like our physical body, the emotional center, and the thinking. When all three work together and produce an action, this is the work of a man. There is a thousand times more value even in polishing the floor as it should be done than in writing 25 books. So you see, Gurdjieff and the Stoics had a very similar value system. Very similar. They placed much more value on the proper functioning, to live consistently, to live as if you are a sovereign being governed by a rational process going on in your mind that is, you know, the unity of all of these other centers that you're thinking and you're, you're reasoning about why you're doing things and you are, now you have the capability to consciously intervene when things are, start to go astray. And so now you have the potential to have an aim. You know, you are struggling, like, you're, like he said about his other students at the, the Institute, that they were like chickens in eggs, and that the Institute only supplied the heat, and yet the chickens still had to break out of, of the egg. Well, there, that is a common theme throughout a lot of his writing, and that is that conscious awareness and the expansion of one's being is actually a, as a consequence of this struggle between yes and no and an exercise of pure will. So something that he says is uh, the evolution of man is the evolution of his consciousness and, and consciousness can it evolve unconsciously? The evolution of man is the evolution of his will, and will cannot evolve involuntarily. Mm-hmm. So, through these exercises, through his own work on himself, there was this sense that you couldn't be an armchair philosopher or psychologist and entertain ideas of growth without this experiential sense of pain, without this uh, conscious struggle that in the moment when you were tired and perhaps hungry and annoyed at the task at hand, you were still pressing forward. You were still 
with a vision of what you were aiming to accomplish using all of your willpower to accomplish it and to to do what it was that you had set out to do in your in your own sense of of goal-oriented behavior and this gets back i think to a lot of the information that we're receiving today from jordan peterson about carrying your own load choosing the responsibilities that you are taking on for yourself that are doable that perhaps stretch you to some limit that to some degree of discomfort outside of your comfort zone that will not only help you to grow your own being but to help those around you who you say you care for and you know taken to its logical extension if if everyone put this into some practice uh, into the goal of being this this Abhi Vatel of of just taking on the responsibility consistently, as you said, Corey, with, with some amount of dedication, we would have a, a very different world, I think, as opposed to you know a world that exists to satisfy one's whims, to gratify one's own pleasure sense of pleasure and 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 enjoyment which adds nothing to the net value that's created for for people so you know one of these ideas was if you ain't struggling if this isn't difficult if this is, if this activity of yours that you've chosen for yourself doesn't have some level of of difficulty then you're not really working on yourself you're not really um you're not really spurring yourself to any kind of significant growth. So these are, these are great things to, to kind of reflect upon, especially in light of all the information that we've been hearing from Jordan Peterson in these regards about personal responsibility. And perhaps in a later show, we'll get into, I think how this, uh, this manifests into uh, or doesn't manifest into the types of thinking that is destructive for a society. Uh, taking all of all of the individual's behavior into aggregate. So, and just one last quote, I think that uh, that speaks a little bit to this as well. He says, "A man must first of all understand certain things." He has thousands of false ideas and false conceptions, chiefly about himself, and he must get rid of some of them before beginning to acquire something anew. Otherwise, the new will be built on a wrong foundation, and the result will be worse than before. To speak the truth is the most difficult thing in the world. One must study a great deal and for a long time in order to speak the truth. The wish alone is not enough. To speak the truth, one must know what the truth is and what a lie is, and first of all, in oneself. And this, nobody wants to know. So, speaking truth about what we see in the world, what we th- what we think is the correct ideology, the right. the correct way to have a perspective on a particular world event, almost can't seem to happen without a 
a real understanding of oneself and one's own perspectives and the, the lies one tells oneself in as a kind of a um, a filter for the truths that come to us about the world. Well, I think to close out the show, I want to talk about just one thing and read a couple more excerpts from these talks in 1943. Um, on the subject of truth and finding the truth, for Gurdjieff, there were no sacred cows. So you basically had to eliminate all of the, all the false things you believed about yourself, about the world, basically start from scratch. Um, and he, he was really actually quite, um, it's quite reassuring that this could, that you could do this and it, it was possible and even a, a good thing and that you wouldn't, you wouldn't lose anything of value because we hold on to our opinions so tightly and so deeply. It's like they become a part of ourselves. We become identified with them. Um, our ideas become us in a, in a very real sense. And it is a, a painful process to get rid of them. And you can see this, you can see this in politics, religion, um, self-image, that these ideas that we have are held so strongly and so emotionally. And there is a, a reticence, uh, uh, like even more than a hesitation, there's an, a total unwillingness to question them. But for, for Gurdjieff, it was, it was almost as if he was saying, well, it's okay to question them. In fact, it's okay to completely obliterate them. Nothing bad's going to happen. In fact, if you were right to start out with, you'll find out that you were right. And you can, you can come back to those original ideas and values, and they'll have even more meaning than they did originally, because you'll know them to be true. They won't just have been implanted by, into you by society and your parents and your own emotional whims here and there to actually forge something for yourself, to construct it for yourself. It'll have so much more meaning and, and value in your life to, to, do, to do that than to have it just willy-nilly come into your consciousness and, and become a part of who you think you are. So this is what I was referencing earlier when I talked about the kind of demystification process. Um, I'll read one thing that, uh, that Gurdjieff said that's kind of related. Um, this is kind of in the topic of, of religiousness and, re and religiosity. So Gurdjieff said, and this is again from the 1943 book, In this work you must do everything the other way around. You must even kill sacred impulses. He who wishes to be free must kill everything within himself. Even if you love God or the Virgin Mary, you must kill them in yourself. Even the idée fixe of believing in a saint, you must send it to the devil, and the saint won't hold you against it. Won't hold it against you. Um, something to consider. It's like uh, I, I think about this too. You know, when people people are worried about questioning God or religion or questioning their their upbringing and their in their faith, it's like. Really, if you think about it, if if these if these figures that we that we idolize look up to, um, whether it's Jesus or Muhammad or Buddha or whoever, it's like, will they really be offended if we question them? If we, you know, if we if we say, oh, you know, I'm not quite sure. Well, no, if they're anything that we think they are, they'll they'll support that process because they'll understand it. Right? Did you want to say something? Well, yeah, I was just going to say, unfortunately, we have a very uh, backwards idea of faith, the, the completely different idea of faith that Gurdjieff has, like mm -hmm. this illustrated in that in that passage. Uh, he's, he says that the saint will hold it against you. He's not saying that these higher ideas aren't real. He's just saying that in order to prove your faith, you have to you have to be willing to abandon it mm -hmm. in order to to actually find it. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So. Elan earlier you'd mentioned this um, this this impression of Gurdjieff as this cold 
cold guy, right? Mm-hmm. And it's probably true to some degree, especially for for people who experienced that side of it and and didn't like what they saw. But keeping in mind this progression that Gurdjieff himself went through, by the end of his life, he was much more warm, um, warm and mellow than than in those early years. And you get a, a different picture of him in the in the thirties and in the forties. And at one point, even in, in Search of the Miraculous, Uspensky quotes Gurdjieff as saying that his system, if it could be categorized, could be called esoteric Christianity. So even though he was very anti-religious at times and constantly questioning religious beliefs, at the same time, he was, he was very religious, and you could categorize his system as a form of Christianity, the, like the, the, the essence, the kernel of Christianity. And you see that in his, in his talk about sleep. The, the state of sleep is pretty much identical to what the Apostle Paul called the, the state of, of necrosis, or death, uh, a state of deadness. This, the, this is the state of humanity without spirit. Um, it is a state of deadness and mortality and entropy. For Gurdjieff, the same thing. That, that's what the state of sleep is. It is a state of mortality. And, and there are, um, well, we could leave aside all the, the correlations between you know, Christian, Christian thought and, and Gurdjieff's system for another time. But just to give an idea of, like a practical example of how, how Gurdjieff, um, I would say, um, not only himself lived, but also taught how to like bring that that religious impulse into life. Like, what should be the what should be the um, the mindset and the the approach that we have in our in our daily living? Like, how do we how do we instill and manifest those Christian like religious impulses in ourselves? There's I wanted to read this um, uh, one other quote about. Uh, one, one, one other quote from this book. So again, this is taking place during the Nazi occupation. So there's um, there's scarcity. Um, there's not a lot to to go around. People are struggling to find food. And so this one participant at one of these talks in Gurdjieff's apartment um, tells him, Mr. Gurdjieff, in this regard, I made an observation this week. I found myself standing in front of some boys for whom I felt pity because they were hungry and poor. And I felt uneasy. I didn't know what to think. At one moment it was pity, but I saw that I couldn't do anything for them, and at another moment, and Gurdjieff, excuse me, you could have done something. You could have given them food. Not your own food, but you could have done something that, something so that they would have food. Objectively, if you had loved them. Objectively, if you had wished that they had something to eat. That would have been enough. They would have left, and automatically, perhaps, they would have found someone who would give them something to eat. The same person says, Precisely, I became aware of my weakness, and this pity turned into hatred. Gurdjieff says, That is not what I advise you. Perhaps you were thinking of this too lightly. But think like a man about helping your neighbor with all your heart, with real compassion. You wish for him to find something to eat. You influence by suggestion, and inwardly you pray. I am... I wish to be for him. And believe me, those boys on leaving the school ten steps down the street would meet someone who would have given them something to eat. It is a law. Or perhaps a week later they would win five million in the national lottery. It has such a force to have compassion, to wish, to love with one's whole presence. So that's kind of where Gurdjieff was at in his later years. Um, Really more of a, a, like a religious mystical thing going on there. Not the not the cold, like harsh taskmaster of the early years, but 
really, um, really trying to instill in the people around him love of humanity. And that's really what comes through in those later years is Gurdjieff's love of humanity and the things that he did in that regard. Pretty much his entire life um, was, you know, aside from the mundane moments, was dedicated to to love for humanity and 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 he did he did so many things towards that end in those final years during the during the war he had a, a stockpile of, of food in his place because he had supporters and he had money uh, like saved up and so during those years he supported tons of people he cooked every day for not only his pupils but for the people in his neighborhood on the streets so the, the poor people in in paris along these streets could come to his place this is like a soup kitchen every day and get fed he and he supported just random individuals so there's one interesting account from the uh, of a woman that grew up during the occupation in paris and she didn't even know who gurdjieff was but in her memoir she included a story about him she just referred to him as uh, as who he was as he was known to to her at the time as just a georgian businessman and she said that he helped her family get through the war um her mother didn't have a job you know and couldn't couldn't find food so he gave her food he'd go to her apartment and give her food and she was always thankful for this strange man um who everyone knew as monsieur bonbon mr candy um because he would give candy to the kids on the streets and when he died thousands of people came to his funeral um came to the to the russian orthodox church to you know during the services um because he'd made an impression on so many people so many people who didn't even know who he was who just just knew him as this uh you know caucasian um georgian armenian businessman and um and that's kind of the that, that in a sense he left several legacies there's the works that he produced and the you know the students that he taught but also this legacy of just the his 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 humanity and the the good that he did for for just random people for people he didn't know and who didn't even know him um you know he didn't he didn't do it for any recognition for himself um in fact he, you know he did it in disguise to a degree um playing a role playing a role was a big him a big thing for him he kept his inner life secret didn't tell people that he that he was this you know master philosopher teacher and whatever um no he was just just a businessman who helped people out on the street and had a soup kitchen um so that really that gives a, an idea of the that aspect of his humanity that often gets lost in the portrayals of him in the literature and i think that's probably a good place to stop for today next week we're going to come back and t again talk about gurdjieff but get into more of his ideas and um well and see where it goes from there so hope you enjoyed it everyone uh thanks for tuning in and we'll talk to you later